Okay, so please welcome our fabulous guest, Mama Alto, today. Woo! <laughs> For those who don't know, Mama Alto is an amazing jazz singer and cabaret artiste. In 2015 and 16 alone, she has gone to win the Outstanding Access at the Melbourne Fringe Awards 2016, Best International Production at the Chamaco Awards Cuba 2015 with Finnegan and Smith's Glory Box, and has been a nominee for the Artist of the Year at the Globe LGBTI Awards 2015. Please welcome Mama Alto, everybody. Yay, Hello. welcome. Thank you for having me, Cheeto and Christine. It's great to be here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to kick off the interview, just wanted to find out from you, what inspires you both musically as an artist and also in life? Oh, it's a, such a tough question. Um, for me, a lot of my inspiration comes from the amazing divas of the past, mm -hmm. um, especially divas in jazz music, um, especially amazing, strong, queer women of colour, like Billie Holiday, like Sarah Vaughan, Lena Horne, Nina Simone, um, incredible artists like that who used their, their musical gifts and talents to also pursue social messages. And, um, and by performing, they were able in some way to contribute to social change in the world. So that inspires my art a lot. I'm also just inspired by any kind of fearless artists or people who live fearlessly and authentically to break down boundaries. So amazing companies like Finnecane and Smith, who I toured to Cuba with, amazing artists like Paul Capsis, like Meow Meow, so many people in the Melbourne theatre and cabaret scene as well. And in my life, I'm especially inspired by, um, I have amazing parents who are just wonderful. They were quite an early kind of pioneering in the 70s mixed race couple. In amongst the circles they moved, they faced a lot of challenges, but they saw them through with a lot of love and a lot of dedication and commitment to each other, but also to social change. So I'm inspired by them a lot as well. Wow, right. that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And then, I, you know, I try to seek inspiration, not just from others who do the same art form and genre as me, who are singers and jazz and cabaret artists, but also in the visual arts, in literature, in history, in all kinds of places. You know, things that when you when you see them or when you experience them, it kind of lights a fire in you where you can recognize the humanity in each other. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that lights me. Yeah. It's amazing how art can really do that. You know, it's not just something that is like, oh, pretty to look at, you know, but sometimes, you know, art can really evoke a lot of emotions and convey a lot yeah. of strong messages. Definitely. And I'm so interested and inspired by how art and the arts and performance can be a site for meaning and for meaning making and also for understanding our own lived experiences in the world or affirming our life experiences um, as well as confronting and challenging certain views or certain prejudices that people might have. Right. Um, often the arts can change that for people in a way that other discourses don't. That's great. Yeah. Well, um, so this year you directed the Divine Femme Choir for Trans and Gender Diverse People Identifying as Femme, which debuted at the Fringe Festival. Could you tell us about what sparked this idea? Definitely. So I have a, I have a great deal of, of friends who are 
as well as myself being um, a gender diverse, gender queer person of colour, I have a lot of friends who are trans and gender diverse people who love to sing and who love to sing in groups and who love to make music together and make performance together. But traditional choirs are quite isolating and alienating for trans and gender diverse people because there's a huge emphasis always in a choir, um, in traditional Western music, uh, to separate everyone into the different vocal parts, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and usually, or high and low, and usually this is done in a very binary, very gendered way that dictate that the, the boys have the low voices and the girls have the high voices. And it can be very destructive and very isolating for trans and gender diverse people when they want to be part of a choir and they end up having these gendered binaries and this kind of gender oppression that weighs so heavily on their lives reinforced to them when they are just there trying to make music and and also to access that feeling of community and support that a choir brings. So we wanted to create an environment where trans and gender diverse people um, could do that and be part of a choir without all of that baggage and connotations and oppression that has often marred their experiences, um, particularly in childhood and early teenage years, of gendered binaries which aren't necessary to sing together. Mm -hmm but so often come up in choir settings, not through any malice or any designed ignorance by directors and conductors of choirs, just because that is the, the music system that they've been socialised into. And sometimes, you know, sometimes people don't question or confront those things that they've grown up with. So we said we'd better start a choir that's just for trans and gender diverse people so that they can become comfortable and, and mix with like-minded people who have experienced that same issue um, in choral singing and empower them because everyone, I think everyone has music inside of them. And so if we give them an environment, and at first it started out from word of mouth and from some call outs we put out online for anyone who would like to join us. It started out with just six singers at the Fringe Festival for the performance that we did at the Melbourne Fringe Club. And then since then it's grown to about 12 because the community feedback we've received is really that this is something that people really did want mm -hmm. and they want to sing and they want to be in a choir, but all of these gendered issues which trans and gender diverse people face in daily life in so many situations were holding them back from being part of choirs. So if in this small way we're able to give them an outlet for self-expression and community, it's really something wonderful. And we started out with people who identify as femme or feminine identifying trans feminine identifying trans and gender diverse people just because that's my own lived experience so it was something that I could definitely cater to and provide towards but now that the choir is um, four months old this month now we're going to spend this summer listening to a lot of feedback and consulting with different people and also open up avenues for trans masculine and uh, mask identifying, butch identifying singers to also come and join us because music's for everybody. Right. Definitely. It's really great that you're creating a, a space for mm. the gender diverse people to be able to express themselves musically. Yeah, particularly ex I think self-expression for everyone needs to be like a given mm -hmm. in life. Like everyone needs to be able to showcase their emotions or have something they can immerse themselves in. That's not just work or school or... Yeah, it's so important and it's so difficult because for trans and gender diverse people, 
not just when they're singing and making music, but all the time, the voice is one of the things that other people feel that they're able to police. And whether that's to say, oh, you need to be talking and singing and using the vocal range of the gender that you were coercively assigned at birth, which you don't identify mm. with, or whether it's the opposite and they're saying you need to be trying harder to change your voice to pass for the gender you do identify with and you should be ascribing to stereotyped gendered notions which are not accurate to begin with because not all not all women have high voices and not all men have low voices these are already artificial constructions in gender binary itself before we even start to consider the needs and expressions of trans and gender diverse people so because the voice is a place that is a site and place for trans people that is policed so much, a place that gives the comfort and freedom of being able to explore and grow your voice, whatever that voice might be, whatever pitch, whatever octave, whether it's high or low, whether it's anything, is a great freedom and something that's very powerful, um, not just for self-expression in art and singing, but to have flow-on effects in self-confidence and life and gender presentation and gender exploration. So you've been talking a little bit about some of the challenges and uh, choral singing that gender diverse people yes. might face, but I was wondering if you think there's been any significant progress made in mainstream media to be more LGBTQIAP inclusive? I, I definitely, I think there's been significant progress, yes, but I also think that it is definitely a double-edged sword situation and it's a bit of a a bit of a two steps forward, one step back. And that's, um, and it's the same with other marginalized identities, including some of my own intersecting identities, like as a, like as a person of color, as well as as an LGBTQIA plus person, is that it is hard to strive to demand a fair and equal and uh, non-stereotyped representation of ourselves in the media of our stories, of our lives, of our lived experiences, of our issues, without mainstream media responding in ways that tokenize us and further, further marginalize, tokenize, commodify, exploit or fetishize us. And so it's very difficult because it's this double-edged sword where through the media in various forms, whether it's news, entertainment, television, movies, music, sports, it can be a great opportunity to reach people who might have always considered us to be different from them and to be less than human uh, or to be less deserving of certain rights or certain respects. It's a great way to reach them and show them that at the core of it is a shared humanity. That's what a lot of my icons and idols have done through music, through entertainment, through sports. At the same time, if it's handled incorrectly by the power groups within the media, the people who are able to produce and, um, and distribute and fund um, the media and entertainment, it can do the opposite and in fact further stereotype and tokenize marginalized groups and use us for purposes of entertainment right. and exploitation. So it's, it's a very difficult double-edged sword because you have, for example, in LGBTQIA plus kind of circles, 
you know, you've had the huge emergence as a media personality and as a go-to spokesperson for trans issues of Caitlyn Jenner. But then you've also seen how that can be exploited in mainstream media. For example, her story was very much exploited to serve at one time a Republican cause. And um, by displaying links between the Republican Party and Caitlyn Jenner in the media, they were able to say, oh, look, we have our token trans person, therefore the Republicans are a queer-friendly, inclusive group. Uh, when, if you look at their policies, yeah, the opposite. that may or may yeah. not actually be the case. So that's what I'm talking about, it being this double-edged sword. So it's, it's, but it's people, people have to try and very carefully negotiate this, and we also have to stake our claim to be content creators and controllers of our own stories rather than just handing them over to other people. And we've seen a lot of success recently um, with people like Laverne Cox, with people like Janet Mock, with people in Australia, people like Josh Thomas on has his own ABC2 TV show now. Um, and we begin to become the auteurs and the scriptwriters and the producers of our own stories. Um, and this, I think, at the moment is much more successful in live art and performing arts and theatre, and it's slowly beginning to make its way into mainstream media like television, like mainstream news outlets. But it's definitely a slow process. It's a two steps forward, one step back process, because by and large a lot of the media seems to be controlled by the interests of a select few who are politically and financially empowered, who monopolise things. Um, you know, you can just look at the example of News Corp and the Australian and their subsidiaries and the ways in which they've launched attacks on marriage equality, on safe schools, and trying to set us up as less than human. And so, you know, to people who are absorbing the mainstream media, who are used to seeing representations of themselves, whether that's in whiteness, heterosexuality, cisgendered, uh, or maleness, any kind of these dominant social groups, when they see someone from a marginalised identity or someone from the disempowered groups within society, we are taken sometimes not as an individual, but as the entirety of our race or the entirety of our, of our sexuality mm. or gendered group. And that can also be very difficult because if we want to tell our stories authentically without catering to some sort of um, politics of politeness or respectability politics, there are stories in our communities that are not positive and pretty. There are stories of mental illness that might be used to stigmatise us or of substance abuse or of violence or of all these things and it's very dangerous because when we want to try and tell our authentic stories and lived experiences, that can sometimes be used against us uh, by the mainstream media and say, oh, they're all like this. Um, and so they pick on these things that they, to begin with, these elements are wrongly stigmatised because we should never pathologise, criminalise or stigmatise these kind of behaviours to begin with. But they will be picked out as things to to use a broad sweeping brush that, that indicts a whole group, whether that's a race or a sexuality, as a certain kind of undesirable person. So it's a very necessary thing to be included in the mainstream media, but it's also a thing that needs a careful negotiation, a careful 
uh, careful, considered ideas of representation shy away from exploitation. So you've mentioned about um, how you have intersecting identities. So um, what do you think queer people of colour in particular still have to um, overcome in order to have their voices heard? Yeah, definitely. I think some of the discussion we just had um, for the for the former question kind of goes towards answering this one, I think. But um, you know, it's it's very difficult because all identities happen at intersections, um, and there's a big push at the moment amongst social justice communities and activist communities to look at intersectionality and the ways in which each individual identity is formed at these sites of intersections between class, race, gender, um, different privileges and different discriminations that affect us all. Um, for queer people of colour, um, like myself, it's it's interesting because you are in a sense, you're in a sense um, marginalised from the mainstream twice over um, but also you can see yourself marginalised within those communities. So even though you're a person of colour, you're a queer person of colour um, and that might see you facing different challenges and different receptions from within that community as well as outside that community. And you're a queer person, an LGBTQIA plus person, but as a, as a person of colour within that community, you might be excluded or discriminated against or fetishized or misunderstood in certain ways. And especially you can look at that kind of in internet and app culture and dating culture, there is that huge kind of stigma that a lot of gay men follow and they've kind of encoded it as this slogan, no fats, no femmes, no Asians, for example. There's also this kind of um, encoded social idea amongst queer communities called no curry, no rice. Um, and so it's this kind of way where queer bodies of colour are, are taken to be a less authentic type of queerness and also typecast as queer bodies that are less desirable. Um, when at the same time, the gay mainstream, which sometimes we call the gay stream, <laughs> uh, or the... And sometimes we call it the gay triarchy, as in yeah, the gay yeah. patriarchy. At the same time as, as discriminating against or separating in, in, in ways that can be very racist or very, um, very racially motivated, they'll also fetishise certain elements of, of the culture and bodies of queer people of colour, like the fetishisation of and adoration of black trans divas or black people of colour who are people of colour who are gender diverse, um, like myself, where they expect you to play towards the tropes and roles that they've come to expect from early media portrayals, um, to play this kind of fabulous fairy godmother role in their life. Um, so it's, it's very difficult because the challenge is there, and this is not all gay people or all queer people, creating these challenges. It's, a, it's just one small part of a larger community. But it does mean that at the intersection of queerness and colour, there are so many issues that we have to face uh, because we're up against not just cis-normativity and heteronormativity and homophobia and transphobia, but also up against 
a kind of white supremacist thread that's very common in Australian culture and American culture. And we're seeing more and more of it in the rise of political figures like Pauline Hanson, oh, yeah. like Donald, Donald Trump, Trump and Mike Pence, <laughs> uh, like Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton. Um, uh, but what what is alarming is that we can see these threads of white supremacy and white nationalism on both sides of the two-party politics systems in America and Australia. And that's one of the most alarming things. So we're existing at this time where where we are beginning to fully realise and talk about and empower our intersections at the very same time where it is becoming more and more dangerous to be at those intersections. And um, that that's the big challenge for queer people of colour. How do you negotiate your identity at the intersection in regards to belonging to or being excluded by multiple marginalised communities? Mm. So it's very complex it and there aren't any easy answers, no. but uh, I always try to approach it through my art just by valuing authenticity, individuality and loving connections through music between people and just taking it to that very base level of a shared humanity in art, in love, in expression and hoping to build from there something that will transcend any kind of divides that are given to us by socialised norms, by prejudices. And in that way, you can slowly start to generate change um, based on that approach of women like Lena Horne, of artists like the Supremes, of um, queer artists and, and people of colour who have been doing this for a long time, who by speaking to people and reaching people through their art are then able to reach them personally and begin to change their minds about these kind of prejudices. It doesn't always work, but it works some of the time. Yeah, oh, and, yeah. and that's what yeah. we can take. That was like... really inspirational. <laughs> I was like, oh. Yeah, very yeah. inspirational. But, you know, I think the, the nice thing is that about art, you can yeah. reach a, a lot of people. And even if some people don't take your message the way you would intend to, someone else might, and they might also spread your intended message you know yeah. um you know it, it works both ways though like good messages and bad messages but um but i mean like yeah. just focusing on like having like having that like art being in that position to be able to have a connection with people yeah. and be open about things is i think important yeah i think and for me in my in my art form because that's required every time you get up on stage to sing to people yeah. It means that each time I get up there, I'm able to start again at the start of the song. And so even if I have had, and, and I have had, um, horrific experiences of people rejecting that kind of message through art, of people who still want to cling to their bigotries or cling to their, to their, divisive, to their divisive ways of holding on to the power that they have been given socially through their privileges, through, through, through their whiteness or their maleness or their cisgendered identity. As many times as that happens, there's always another time where, where the opposite happens. Right. And someone comes to me after a show and says, oh, I'd never seen the world from your point of view, or I'd never, because music can touch them in that way. So each time I get up to sing, it's it's the start of another song and it's starting again from the start and I just kind of try to put aside 
all of the um, you know, all of the times when I haven't been able to reach someone or change someone's mind and try to start that connection fresh again, the way that I have to start a song fresh again each time. And it's a very it's a difficult thing to do, but it's really the only way I know how. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep doing what you're doing. We really do enjoy your music. And yeah, just to wrap up, in case anyone else wants to catch you performing, I'll be catching <laughs> Alto. Yeah. Where can people find out information on uh, your upcoming performances? The best ways to stay in touch with everything that Mama Alto is doing. Um, I have a website at mamaalto.com, M-A-M-A-A-L-T-O.com, or through the Mama Alto Facebook page, which is just facebook.com slash mamaalto. And we update all of our performance schedules regularly. We have a mailing list that you can get through the website. Um, for people who are interested in the Divine Femme Choir, uh, whether that's that they're interested to see the choir perform or whether they're interested to join the choir, or whether they're interested to help us begin our new choir for trans mask and trans masculine people, you can find their Facebook page through the Mama Alto website and Facebook page. And yeah, that's that's the best way to find out things about us. And um, and we're always open to feedback from people from our different communities, amongst the queer communities and amongst the communities of colour and. Um, we're always interested to hear if people think there are other things that, that me and, and at Mama Alto or at the Divine Femmes Choir could be doing better to service our communities. Because I think that's partly the way we have to operate. You know, we all are doing our best to support and uplift each other, but there's always more that we can do. Well, great. I think that was such an insightful interview. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great to hear from you and, and, and hear uh, uh, that you would like to have me on the podcast. I was like, oh, that's so exciting. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we were excited. Oh, yeah, we were like, whoa. <laughs> she said yes. <laughs> well, that concludes this installment of Minority Spotlight.